I have had in my life, in my Christian experience for the last 35 years, a number of, a great number actually, of what I call defining moments. And it's where I'm going along and sort of minding my own business and doing what I'm doing and all that. And the Lord just takes some truth, the Holy Spirit. Again, uh, we've been here looking at the Gospel of John and we've talked about the life of the light of God uh, coming out of us because the life of God has come into us. And when we decide to simply believe in the work of Jesus that has gone on, that we are given the right to become children of God, to simply trust in the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Don't want to leave that out ever. And as such, we have the life of God, the Holy Spirit of God that actually comes in and takes up residence inside of us. As a result of that, light comes out. And God is glorified by that. And those are all churchy kind of words and stuff, but we're going to look at that in a little bit more depth this morning and how that happens, the nuts and bolts of that. Because what we're going to look at this morning is this concept of grace and truth. Because Jesus is full of grace. He's also passionate about the truth. And so I've had these defining moments... And this one time, uh, this is many years ago, I was sort of fresh out of Bible college and, and uh, had gone to work for a guy and, and, uh, who was a, breath, a believer, a brother in the Lord. And, and his sons, he had three guys, three boys, and they all worked there too. And I had some skills, and so he hired me at a pretty good rate of pay. And, and um, they didn't like that. <laughs> they really just didn't care for me all that much. And they made it kind of clear. And it went on for months. And I remember one time I thought, you know what, I've had it. I've just had it. A very spiritual way to look at things. And uh, so I told my boss, I want to meet you, Bob, after work today. And uh, we met at the office after closing hours, and all those creepy sons of his had gone home. <laughs> Sorry. But that was kind of how, it, you know, I was just kind of being arrogant about it. And, and so he said, he, he, we had a, a stand-up working counter, and he leaned on this counter. I'll never forget. Uh, still know him today, wonderful brother in Christ. And he's leaning on this counter, and he has this blank look on his face. He said, so what's up? He's from New York, and he always called me kiddo. And uh, he wasn't from New York, he's from New York. And so he had this thick New York accent, and he was always talking, you know, the way that New Yorkers do. And he goes, so what's up? And I said, whoa, so what's up? i got to tell him what's up. So I began to launch in, and he's leaning against this counter. And... <laughs> I looked at him and he just had this, you know, approachable and not condemning but not happy, just kind of this blank, neutral look on his face. And I began to launch in. And I went down the list. Well, they did this and they were that and this and that and the other thing. And I'm really sick of this and da da da. And I'm thinking, this is going really good because I've got an audience with this guy. He's not getting mad and telling me to pack my bags or anything like that. So I go on and I go on and on. <laughs> and he's leaning on the counter the whole time, still looking at me. And I, I, at one point, I started to kind of wind down. It was like a tightly wound spring, you know? And as I ran out of things to say, I'm thinking, maybe this isn't going as well as I thought it was. This is definitely not going as well as I thought it was because I started to feel embarrassed for all the things that I'd been rattling on about. And at one point, he looks at me and he says, Are you finished? And I was like... Well, I guess I am. I really can't think of anything else to say. And I said, yeah. And the next thing that he said has rung through my soul for a very long time. He said, you know, kiddo, it's better to be kind than it is to be right. I was pierced. I mean, the full conviction of God, the full conviction of the Holy Spirit just rained down on me in that moment. I did not even want to look at the guy, let alone take the energy to get up and tiptoe out. 
I felt very small. I felt as though I was being very trivial. And I mean, I was totally convicted. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that sense of the conviction of God coming to rest upon you, upon your soul, to where you really don't feel like you've got much room to wiggle at this moment. That was a defining moment for me because I realized that I can be right. And every single thing I said about those guys of his was right. But I was completely out of God's will. Utterly out of God's will. There was no grace. We've been looking at the prologue of John's Gospel in verses 1 through 18. And I'm not going to go back. We've looked at a good deal of it already. And we've seen that the glory of God is manifested by His grace. But it's never at the exception of truth. We see that when it says in in verse 14 of chapter 1, if you have a Bible, you can go there with me. It says uh, that God's glory is manifested in grace and truth. That in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about tabernacled among us, tented among us, as though in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the tent that they had back then that Moses had built, was the dwelling place for God's glory. And His Shekinah glory rested in the Holy of Holies, that it was not approachable by the common man once a year for the high priest, and that was it. And so now we see the glory of God coming to rest in the person of Jesus who was God that took on a body. And it's very important to understand, gang, that when He took on a body, He did not stop being God. Fully man, fully God. At the same time. And so it says that He became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Why did we behold His his glory? Because He has the glory of God. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full. Why does He say full? Because I'll tell you what, it is inexhaustible. His grace, it's who He is. It's not something He possesses, it's who He is. He is gracious. And God, He could have come, it would have been totally legal in that sense for Jesus to come as judge and arbiter. He could have come to simply say, you know what, you're done, I'm done, and you're done. Kind of similar to what happened at Kadesh Barnea when Israel refused to go into the promised land and God said, you know what, I'm just going to destroy them all, Moses. I'm just going to destroy them all, I'm going to start over. And Moses got on his face before God and begged him not to destroy the children of Israel. He could have come that way. But he chose because of who he is. Because he is full of grace and truth. To come and take on a body. To to actually step into his own creation. It's the most miraculous, marvelous thing that has ever happened in human history. And that he would come humble and lowly. He would be passionate about people, compassionate towards people, and passionate about truth. Because he never sacrificed truth at the expense of grace. He never sacrificed grace at the expense of truth. We'll look at that as we go through. So, dropping to verse 16, in verse 15, it talks about John the Baptist, and we'll get into that more next week when we look at uh, John the Baptist a little more closely. But in verse 16, he says, And of his fullness, what fullness? The fullness we just talked about. He says, He came full of grace and truth, and of his fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace. Saving grace? Yes. Touched on it last week, but also sustaining grace. Not one of us, gang, can get up in the morning and get through the day if we were not utterly, utterly reliant upon the grace of God in our lives, extended to us personally. Uh, something I, I, I've shared, I don't know if I've shared it here, but I've shared before, is let's say that I could take you and put you in a chair and hook a bunch of electrodes up to your head. That Nicholas has a machine back in the sound booth, and what that does is it, it interprets... Uh, Jack's going, I'm so thankful he doesn't. But, <laughs> but, but that we could take not the thoughts of a lifetime... Not the thoughts of the last week, but the thoughts that have gone through your head since you got out of bed this morning. We could project them up on the screen for everyone to see. How comfortable would you be? Oh, no. 
the basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. None of us makes the cut. We are completely reliant upon the grace of God. He had to come in grace or destroy us. It was one or the other. One or the other. And I'm so thankful that he's a gracious and loving and compassionate God. And he does it without expensing or without dispensing with truth. He says in verse 16, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this grace that we're talking about is not mere sentiment, you guys. Yes, the textbook thing is it's, it's unmerited favor, and that's true. But what it truly is, how does that work out in your life and mine? It means that I am being, not acting, but being better to people than they deserve. Understand, I'll say it again. I am being because I have, again, I have the life of God in me. And if I have the life of Him in me and of His fullness I've received, then He has given me the capacity to walk in grace. And not at the expense of truth, but to walk in grace. So it's being better towards others than they really deserve. Because that's how God is towards us. When you see how bad the bad news is, the word gospel means good news, you can only grasp how good the good news is when you see how bad the bad news is. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it is really bad news. Really bad news. So Jesus has compassion for people and a passion for truth. There's a mixture there. Now go with me to the Gospel of John chapter 8. This is where we're going to take a diversion because I see this very... You know, you look at God's Word and you will see this worked out in the life and in the things that Jesus was involved in in all of the Gospels. You see this worked out very clearly over and over and over again. But remember, it said there in verse 17 that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. So I want to look at this contrast here. We see here in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 12. Verse 2, Now early in the morning he, Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus had caused quite a ruckus the day before. When during this whole solemn procession where the priests had gone down to the pool of Siloam and they'd come up with these pitchers of water and they were dumping them in these deals at the temple. And, and I mean, it was very quiet. Have you ever been in a really quiet, solemn procession? And in the middle of this utter silence, when everybody's just paying attention to the priests, this rabbi from Galilee starts screaming... Drink the water that I give you, and from your innermost being will gush forth these rivers of living water. And the priests were scandalized. They sent soldiers out. I keep hitting this. They sent, yeah, tie my hands and I can't talk. Um, but they sent soldiers out. You guys relate too. Some of you do. But they sent soldiers out after he offended them with this whole, you know, outburst, which really got a lot of people's attention, to try and find grounds to arrest him. And the soldiers came back to the priest and said, wow, the things he said were really, really good. Because it's like they went and they got within earshot of Jesus and he's teaching the people and they were like blown away. And, and the priests were even angrier then. It was like we send these soldiers out and now he's got their attention. And so they're really out to get him at this point. And so it says in verse 1 that he went to uh, the Mount of Olives. And the reason why is they didn't, of course, have cell phones or any of that technology in those days. So they always had a prearranged place to meet. And so the disciples and Jesus would always meet on the, the Mount of Olives because during the national feast, the, the hillsides would be littered with tents. Because millions of people literally would come from all over the empire, all over the region, and come to these national feasts in Israel. And so Jesus went to the Mount of Olives the night before. He gets up in the morning and goes straight to the temple. And, and it says that he came and he sat down and began to teach them. And now that's not why I sit to teach. I sit to teach because I'm lazy. But um, no, not really. I just focus better. 
It's just comfortable. But he sat down and began to teach them. And in the first century, the teacher would sit and the people would stand. So I'm not going to ask you to stand up. Lucky you. But... It says, and he sat down to teach them in verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I'm going to keep going. You guys are getting to know me. Uh, I love to rabbit trail, but I'm going I'm to hold the course here. Now Moses, verse 5 in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Because what they were trying to do, they didn't care about this woman violating the law of Moses. What they cared about was finding a way to accuse him. Because if they said, well, all right, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act, yeah, yeah, and I always wonder, where's the guy? (laughs) He doesn't show up. But they say she was caught in the very act, and I believe indeed she was, because Jesus talks to her about it later. But if he said, well, and they said, what do you say we should do? We should stone her, is what the law says. And if he said, well, no, don't do that, then they could accuse him of being an infidel. He's not a good Jew. He calls himself a rabbi. He's going against the law of Moses. But if he said, go ahead and stone her, they could accuse him of being a political insurrectionist and that he's against Rome. So what they would, were doing here was they were trying to put him in a vice and trying to get him to where you know he really couldn't fall on one side or the other. He could not give them an answer to this that was going to satisfy them. He was going to indict himself if it was a yes or if it was a no. Very cleverly devised. It says, but Jesus, in verse 6, stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I love that. I just You, you never know what's going to happen with this guy. <laughs> so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He is without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest and even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Back up here. Well, before we do, I want to take a minute. Let's go to the next slide, Nicholas. I want to look at the temple. Now, I should have gotten a little pointer, but that's all right. Um, Oh, we have a pointer. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you, Matt. Technology. I forgot we had it until now. All right, this is what the, this is an artist's rendition of what the temple would have looked like in the first century. You see in the bottom right here, in the bottom center right, that there's a bridge. That's the Kidron Valley there. And there was, it was called the Bridge of the Red Heifer, and it went across from the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Good. Yeah, the, the the bridge of the red heifer here, and, and it was destroyed, and now the valley is kind of largely filled in, but there's still, uh, you go down the Kidron Valley here, and then you can hang a right and go up. In the Old Testament, it's called the Valley of Hinnom, uh, past the old city. The old city of David would be down here. Um, and you go to the Valley of Hinnom, but in the New Testament, it's called the Valley of Gehenna. I know, I'm just wiggling all over. Um, and so, anyway, this Kidron Valley went down. The golden gate where Jesus is scheduled to return, it would be right here. So here we have the temple. And the temple would have, well, here's the, this is actually called the court of the women here. And then we have the the, the brazen altar. And then when you get further in, there's the brass laver, the, the, it's where they would wash themselves. They would sacrifice the animals. Ah. Oh, wrong button. They would sacrifice the animals up here and then take the blood and do the, the whole deal with the horns of the altar. I'm not going to go into that. But And then, as they went into the temple proper here, there would be a big washing basin. It was it was made out of bronze, and it was called the, the, the bronze laver, where they would ceremonial wa- ceremonially wash before they went into the holy place of the temple, which was the front part here. 
In that would be the altar of incense, symbolic of prayers. And on one side would be the table of showbread. Again, I could go in, I'd love to go into the, all of these things point to Jesus. He's the total fulfillment of all this. And on the other side would be the, the brass menorah or the bronze candlestick with the seven candles and all. You see that the Jews today use that same deal. And then there would be this big veil. Alright, so this big veil would be between the holy place and what's called the Holy of Holies. Now the Holy of Holies, stay with me here, I'm not just trying to give you a, you know, a lesson here for no reason, I'll get to it. The Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and it was where the very presence of God dwelt in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. That's interchangeable. When you see Testament, it means contract or covenant, okay? And so there was where one day a year the glory of God would be in this place and the high priest would go in and he would offer, he would sprinkle blood and we'll get to some very significant things about that come Easter. But uh, when we look at the resurrection and all. But in this place, it would be the only place where God dwelt because he's holy. And yet, we see now that Jesus has come to the outer court here. This is the court of the Gentiles is what it's called. Because he really has broken down the wall between Jew and Gentile. There's no such thing now in his economy. It's, do you believe or do you not? And so Jesus is here teaching. And in this temple area, you see these columns here. There are porticos. And between each column, you could probably fit 100 or 150 people in there. And he would go and the rabbis would go during the national feast and they would teach in these porticos. Well, Jesus would show up at one of these porticos and it was lined with them all the way around. And the place would start to burgeon with people sticking out because he was so popular in those days. Because his teaching carried such weight. And, and it, he was, it, it wasn't the same as what the Jewish leaders taught at all. It was radical for them. And so, rather than having the presence of God here, separated from the people, now we have the presence of God out here among the people. That's the point. Why? Because he's full of grace and truth. Fabulous. So this woman is brought in. He's probably teaching in one of these areas in here. She's brought in and she's put in a circle in front of him. And these guys are standing there with a bunch of rocks. And they say, well, the law of Moses says that we should stone such a one. What do you say? Jesus simply stoops down and begins to write on the ground. Now, for many years as a Christian, and I may have mentioned this before in passing, but I'll camp on it a little bit now. For many years as a Christian, I would go through this and study this or be taught this, and I would think, well, he sat here, he, he knelt down and he began to write in the dirt. He's in the temple. <laughs> There's no dirt. Probably, there may have been dirt, but chances are it was stone. So they're trying to run this thing up the flagpole. The law of Moses says, and when was the last time, Exodus 33, that you saw the finger of God writing in stone? When he wrote the Ten Commandments, which is the heart, the Decalogue, the heart of the Old Testament law. I don't know. That's that's speculation. That's I'm deep into interpretation here. I want to be careful. I, my personal belief is that he didn't have to write anything. He just had to start writing in rock. And he would have these guys' attention. For what it's worth, he may have been writing out, you know, Bartholomew, behind the deal last week or what you know who knows what's important was he got these guys attention it's really significant here because I'm sorry my uh, let's go back a couple of pages Nicholas um, oh, oh I can do that here too can I yeah right there uh, I want to talk about a couple of things here when we talk about grace and truth, was this woman wrong? Were those guys right? Oh, they, technically, yes, absolutely, they were right. They were right. Were they right in picking up rocks? Technically, yeah. But you got to remember what Jesus said. He said, "I didn't come to abolish the law." 
I came to fulfill it. And now, through simple faith, you and I can simply believe and the law is fulfilled in us, in Christ. We, don't, we do not have to structure our lives according to the law. It was fulfilled. And so what does that usher in? The age that we live in now, the church age, which is also called the age of? Grace. Grace. Yeah. The age of treating people better than they deserve. What does Jesus do with this woman? Where are your accusers? Where did they go? Well, they're gone, Lord. He says to her in verse 10, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. 3.17 says this, that He did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save. Folks, this woman, as are you and I outside of Christ, stood already condemned. As I said, he could have come and just stood on the righteous principle of the law and said, yep, she deserves to die. And they would have run that up the flagpole and all that, but he, he would have been right in doing that. But he would have been wrong. Because he would have been going against his own character. He would have been going against his own person. Because he's passionate about truth, but he's compassionate towards people. Do you see how this has worked out? What we see in John chapter 1 is perfectly demonstrated here. Perfectly. He's full of grace and truth with this woman. And it's it's amazing to me. He says, go and sin no more. Now, if somebody said to me, go and sin no more, I'd go, yeah, right. I'm just being honest. We talked about that a little bit ago, about you know having the projector with my thoughts and all that stuff. What does he mean? I like this the way this is rendered in the New International Version. It says, he says, go and leave your life of sin. Leave it behind. Let it go. How often do we in the church not leave that behind? How often do we in the church decide that we're going to be exacting and that we're going to hold people by the scruff of the neck for the sake of truth with no grace? Jesus said when people open that door and they look in, that they should know you by the love you have one for another. And that's how people will know us. Because this radical transformation has taken place on the inside. I don't care if you've been a Christian for four minutes or 40 years. We all have room to grow in grace. He tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Him. We're all in this thing called growth. We're all in this process called sanctification. We were cleansed the moment we believed. Absolutely cleansed, dipped in the righteousness of Christ. And that's positional sanctification, that's positional holiness. It says now he is sanctifying us. The word sanctus in Latin means holy. And so now he is sanctifying us as we go through. That's why we don't get saved and he throws us in some bin, says heaven bound. (laughs) That's not what he does. We face challenges. We deal with difficult personalities. We have marriages. And boy, you want to talk about something that will sharpen us. And I'm not saying anything about my wife. It's different from anybody else's spouse. We sharpen one another. God uses that. And it's wonderful. I mean, I love my wife and I love the relationship He's given us. And it's, it, it, it has to be grace. I love to say she knows me better than anybody and she still loves me. That just blows me away. (laughs) But it's true. Because she's passionate about grace. Passionate about her husband. Passionate about truth. And that's what he wants to see worked out in our lives. 
See, I'm going to talk to you about. Let's go past the uh, the slide, the temple there. There we go. Look at three things here on each. What happens if we walk in? Um, grace but no truth and then we're going to look at what happens if we walk in truth but without grace you have to understand guys this has to both of these have to be in place there is a very intelligent balance to walking in these things why does grace devoid of truth not work because grace without truth is hypocrisy Oh, I hear people say, well, I'm not going to go to that church. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. And my response always is, come on in, one more won't hurt. (laughs) It's true. It's true. But it's hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy, if you look in the New Testament, like in Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about don't practice your righteousness in front of men to be noticed by them. Don't do as the hypocrites do. That word hypocrisy there, the Greek word is almost exactly like the English word. It's hypocrites or something. I can't remember. I studied it last night and I was tired. But the point is, believe me, go look it up yourself. But the point is, what it literally means is play actors. Play actors. That's what the hypocrites are. They're play actors. So, if you are going to walk in grace without truth, you're play-acting with people. Truly. It's hypocrisy. It's saying one thing, but really kind of operating from a whole different agenda. A here is, is grace without truth excuses away sin. Notice Jesus didn't say, Oh, hon, it's okay. <laughs> oh, hon, it's okay. It made a little bitty mistake. No, I mean, he didn't talk with a Western accent either. But <laughs> the point is, he doesn't say, Oh, hon, it's okay. He doesn't excuse away sin. That would be the type of thing that would put him on the cross. He had to come in order to die. That was the whole point of his coming. And so, with that being the case, if we want to have alleged grace for people, but it's but we rob that of the truth, then we're excusing away sin. The other thing is it rationalizes behaviors. Think about it. If I want to treat somebody better than their actions deserve, grace but not have any truth in there, not have that nugget of truth that has to be mixed in, that has to be balanced with, then I could say something like, you know, hon, maybe it was trauma during potty training. I don't know. You just, you had some needs, you got them satisfied, no big deal. That's not what Jesus does. C, it's slimy, flattering, cheap and shallow it reminds me of Krylon spray paint sorry (laughs) this is being broadcast is it okay for me to use product names at any rate seriously have you ever taken it's like I have this beautiful thing that I've bought and I want to change the color and have it match my decorations in my house and stuff and I go down and I pay $2.98 for a can of Krylon spray paint and man I start painting that baby and it starts to run and it's transparent I can't get the color I mean I have to give that thing 42 coats in order to do it <laughs> it's cheap it's slimy it's it's disgusting I don't want my life to look like that And Jesus doesn't paint that picture, pun intended, with this woman. Grace without truth is really not grace at all. Why? Because generally, there's an agenda. There's an agenda. Either I want you to know that I'm just a really, really nice guy, and I really don't care about truth. I just want you to know I'm a nice guy. Or I have, there's something I want to accomplish in this. So what are you doing after the thing with the Pharisees later? No. Grace devoid of truth does not work. It doesn't work. 
Francis, you're cracking up. I, I can't wait to ask you later. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work in relationships. It destroys relationships, guys. It's slimy. And people see right through it. Uh, you know, I worked in sales for a long time. <laughs> and there were times that people would like, they'd come at me with a whole deal and I would be thinking inside as they're giving me this whole pitch. Very flattering. Oh, you look so nice today. You know, all this stuff. And, and I'd be thinking... Do you not realize that I see right through this? Like, it's, I don't want to buy what you have already. And it's just because there's no truth in it. And you know, if you have the Spirit of God within, you know when people are kind of running something up the flagpole with you. Got to be careful because we're not always right. Sometimes our discernment is off. I don't want to blow anybody away, blast somebody because I think that they're being a certain way. Of course, that comes into it. The next thing is three things. Why does truth devoid of grace not work? Because truth without grace is brutality. Truth without grace can be brutal. Now think about it. Think about somebody. You know, Jesus said, "You're the salt of the earth." And I was looking at the periodic table. Salt is a compound. It's called sodium chloride table salt. There are over 200 compounds that have to do with sodium, but the one we use for salt on the table is sodium and chlorine. Chlorine, yeah, they're not deadly when they're mixed. But you know, salt is kind of accommodating. There, like I said, 200 compounds. It attaches to just about anything. And yet, chlorine, you got to be really careful with that stuff. I mean, you don't mix poor chlorine in your toilet after you scrubbed it out with ammonia. Bad idea. <laughs> End up with this ammonia gas thing that could kill you. You don't eat chlorine or drink it because it can be deadly by itself. The only way that table salt is really good is when that compound is together. It's the same thing with grace and truth, you guys. It's the same thing. It's not deadly. Truth is not deadly if it's seasoned with grace. That's why Paul says in Colossians, let your speech be seasoned with grace. A, it's condescending and condemning. Just look at this woman, Jesus. Look at this filthy woman. Caught her in adultery, I did, in the very act. She needs to die. No account for their own lives. No account for that finger that's pointed with the three pointed pointed back at me. They were condemning her. And Jesus didn't come to condemn her. In a larger sense, a much larger sense, an infinitely larger sense, she was already condemned. He came to save her. From what? From herself. Just as he does with you and I. What did Jesus save me from? Hell? Yeah, but he doesn't assign people to hell. People assign themselves. He came to save us from ourselves. And if you don't believe you need saving, please talk to me or one of the elders after church. We'll convince you. No, (laughs) I don't mean it that way. But no, really, please talk to someone. Because truly, as I said earlier, the bad news is really bad. But the good news is is mind-blowing and completely off the charts good. And it's free. It's totally free. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's gracious. So it's condescending. It looks down at people. Yeah, that woman. Look at her. It's condemning. She needs to die. It's hurtful. And it's arrogant. You want to mess up an otherwise good relationship? Come at somebody with truth and no grace. I guarantee you, marriages fail on this, guys. Let it not be so among us. 
No, allow your life to be constrained by the Holy Spirit because He's not only the helper, He's the constrainer. And if we're willing to walk by the Spirit, He will reel us in. As one ingredient that's required. Humility. One of the hardest things for us to do is to take a good, honest look at our own hearts. I'm included in that, gang. It's hard to look and to say, Lord, show me my heart, because I'll deceive myself. My heart is deceitfully wicked above some things. It's not what the Bible says. It says it's deceitfully wicked above all else. And so I need the Spirit of God's work in me to show me my own heart. Because I will deceive myself every time and think I'm just being all sweetness and light when I'm really just nailing people all over the place. So it's hurtful. It's arrogant. And and the remedy for that, you guys, is humility. It's just simple. Lord, let me see myself as I am, as I truly am. Show me the areas of my life where I can more accurately reflect and represent you. And Lord, grant me the humility to see it and to not walk around being condemned because I know you didn't come to condemn me, but to walk around knowing that you've got this. And all you simply ask for me to do is to come and to give myself to you afresh and that you'll do the work in me as as I just simply yield to that thing you're showing me. I guarantee you guys, relationships will look far better in your lives. The body of Christ works far better when we're willing to simply be humble and say, Lord, what about me? Not the next guy, but what about me? Lastly, it originates from anger and pride. Truth without grace... Sometimes we call it brutal honesty, and it does not glorify God. If Jesus wanted to be brutally honest with this woman, he had every right to be. He fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. He was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin, never sinned, ever. If anybody had the right to really lower the boom on this woman, it was him. But because he's gracious, and because the Word of God tells us mercy triumphs over judgment, he's merciful. He says, No, where are your accusers? By the way, go and leave that sinful lifestyle you've been carrying on with. It's a good reminder for us. Verse 12, the last thing that Jesus says here. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You want to be lifted up from that judgmental attitude? You want to be lifted up from feeling like you're the one that's called to fix everybody else? I've known people like that. It's no fun. Or do you want to be the person that's trusting God for your life and trusting Him for the person next to you? We talk about faith. Often I take, and I, because faith is so worn out, and I don't mean literally, I mean it's a good word, but in church circles, we talk about faith all the time. Replace that with the word trust. Do I have faith that God's going to work in your life? I do. Because he's the God that we believe he is to be. It's not my job as a pastor to try to fix you. That's the last thing in the world I want to do is to screw up this ministry by trying to be the Holy Ghost Repair Service. Does it mean that there are never hard things? Does it mean that there are never hard... That was the name of a ministry in Hollywood I went to when I was in Bible college. It just popped out. That's free. Uh, no charge. Anyway, but it's, it's not my place. The church's job isn't to be an arbiter between you and God. The church is to come alongside, to pray for you, to teach you, to equip you. To, I mean, those are the things that the church does. And we trust God. Because it's between you and Him. It's a personal relationship. I'm not part of it. I'm not going to stand before God with you. I'm going to stand before God on my own. 
And I want to hear those words more than anything. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. How's it going to happen? By me being humble enough to hear the Master's voice and say, Lord, what about me? He says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. These guys were the guys that were all self-righteous and smug and camping on truth at the expense of grace. Absolutely. Walking in darkness. They thought they were there. They had so deceived themselves. Instead, you can have the light of life. You see how this connects back to John chapter 1 where he talks about the, the, the life of God going in. When I believe, the life of God comes in. He comes in. The Holy Spirit comes in. And He begins to work in my heart, to work in my life. And if I've been a Christian for a long time, I need to constantly be yielding to that because I can get in the habit of just kind of going through the motions. One of the things that's true, I'm going to share this with you guys in closing. In a church that's been around for a while, we begin by making ourselves available to God, and God gives us tasks, tasks to perform. What can happen over time is those tasks can become routines. And what can happen over time is those routines become rituals. I'm excited. I didn't ask God to call me here, but He did. And He's called you guys here too. In a way, when He brings, and he, it's like He shuffles the deck. And he says, you know what? I want to do some new things. I want to break down the rituals. I want to shake it up. And you know, most of us say, well, yeah, I really want change. I like change. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> A very wise man that discipled me said, you know what? You move somebody's phone from one side of the desk to the other, they're going to be undone for a month. <laughs> <laughs> we say we want change because God's changing things here. I didn't ask Tom to resign and to retire. I mean, and God bless it. He and Margaret, I'm so excited for their lives. And what he did through that was he began a new work here. And I'm excited for what God has for us. I shared that three weeks ago in my first message here as your pastor. And so I'm excited. And are there going to be challenges? Yeah, because he likes to shake things up. And he likes to break us from our routines because after a while, those routines can become as meaningful as getting a birthday card from your dentist. Really? You ever get those? I get those. My dad, hey, happy birthday, John. It's time for your annual checkup. Wow, Doc, I think I'll call you right now and tell you how thankful I am you wrote me. No. Tasks, routines, rituals. And the Lord says, I'm going to shake it up. And I'm not saying I'm coming in here like the new sheriff in town. Please don't get me wrong, okay? That's not that's not what I believe the Lord's will is. It's not my heart. And yet I know that this ministry is different from the one previous. And I'm just excited. I'm excited for what God wants to do. And I encourage you guys to hang in and to hang on. And if you ever have questions or, or things that you want to go over or discuss, our door is open. My door is open. My phone is always on, 24-7. And we'll have the number in next week's bulletin. I don't think anybody's got our numbers. My wife as well. Because our job, our calling, my calling is to serve you. To simply serve, to go low say, you know what? I don't have days off. And I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. Do I want to get refreshed at times? Yeah, of course. Like anybody else. But we're here for you. And as we go along, as the Lord mixes things up in areas, please, if there's anything that's bothering you, anything that's coming to the light with you, let us know. 
And we love you guys. We, God has already given us a love for this body. And I've been surprised because I think about this and I pray for you guys constantly. It's like he just, when he equips, he, he equips the equipper kind of a thing. And, and I mean, it's just been a glorious thing for my wife and I because it's like our talks all revolve around Calvary Newburgh. And we're no longer talking about what kind of laundry detergent we're going to get. No, they, we didn't occupy ourselves much with that. She does, but I don't. But the point is, it's, it's, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to get one of those talks on the way home today. But uh, <laughs> I want to end with, some, with, a, with an exhortation, guys. Be careful. As you walk in grace and you're balancing that with truth, it is most of the time not your job to go thinking that God has called you to launch into somebody else's life. And under the auspices of grace, lower the boom. Paul is very clear in Galatians chapter 6. If a brother is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness. See grace and truth. Lest you be tempted and fall into the snare of the devil. Fast track out of God's will is to take it upon yourself again to to feel like you're the guy that's been called. Very often God shows you a, a, a flaw or something in someone else's life. It's because he's tapping you to pray. I will pray. I will pray for a long time. And I will ask God to align hearts with His will. It's not my job to fix people. It's my job to love them, to bring them the truth of the gospel. And you know what? You decide what you're going to do with this. That's between you and the Lord. Let's pray. Father, You are so incredibly gracious to us. You come to us in love. You never stop coming to us in love. I know times when I've been out there, Lord, and you've chastised me, it's because you love me still. Father, for each of these, I pray that you would instruct us that our lives would reflect your grace, that we would be the salt of the earth, but it would be sodium and chlorine together, Father, not one at the expense of the other. That we could simply reflect Jesus to this lost, screwed up, messed up world. That we could find rest for our souls. That you not only want to use us, Father, but you want to simply woo us and to bring us into that place of simply resting in you. The storms can rage around us. You even get rained on in football games. And yet, Lord, we know that you're there and that you're steadfast and that you simply pour out your love on us. And there are times where you come to us with hard truths. I pray that our hearts would be open. That you, as you illuminate those areas in our lives, would find vessels, hearts that are yielded, that are humble, that are willing to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's our goal. That's our desire. That's our dream, Lord, that you would just continue to work in us. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done. We look forward with anticipation to the work that you want to do in this church. And as we yield to you, we pray that you would simply pour out your love on our lives. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and how powerful it is. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.